This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together. The podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. We, we arrived at the university the same year, and Brian was provided some startup new faculty funds, and he used those to actually bring out one of his mentors from North Carolina to the University of Montana. You know, looking back, it seemed like this sort of mentor intergenerational experience, like here was his mentor that meant so much to him. And then it was also clear that he was developing himself as a mentor to me and others, um, and that we were kind of all together celebrating that. He's also an exceptionally supportive mentor. So he would see very clearly where I was, was listening very carefully for where I wanted to go, and had a very supportive way of mentoring um, so that I could make that progress. It really was a wonderfully productive and fun collegial period of my life. You just heard the voices of Nick Livingston and Michelle Peavy, alumni graduates of UM's PhD program in clinical psychology, talking about our guest on this episode, Dr. Brian Cochran. Brian is professor and director of clinical training in the psychology department, where he just finished his 20th year of service to the University of Montana and the Missoula community. That 20 years has seen him build out an impressive research program and make a substantial impact on the treatment and support of LGBTIQ patients. He directs a graduate program that produces talented mental health professionals who serve crucial roles in the system of mental and behavioral health care delivery in the state, the region, and throughout the country. I've had the pleasure of working with Brian for over two decades, and I don't know a more conscientious, supportive, and talented colleague. You'll hear Brian read from David James Duncan's River Teeth, where we launch our conversation which covers his path to psychology, the evolution of the field's inclusion of gender-diverse perspectives, and the wide variety of job opportunities for psychology graduates. Welcome to Confluence, where we listen closely to the old river log of memory and seek preposterous joy. Our present tense human experience, our lives in the inescapable present are like living trees. Our memory of experience, our individual pasts, are like trees fallen in a river. The current in that river is the passing of time. And a story, a good, shared story, is a transfusion of nutrients from the old river log memory into the eternal now of life. There are, however, small parts of every past that are hard, cross-grained whirls of memory that remain inexplicably lodged in us, long after the straight-grained narrative material that housed them has washed away. Most of these worlds are not stories exactly. More often, they are self-contained moments of shock or of inordinate empathy, moments of violence, uncaught dishonesty, tomfoolery, of mystical terror, lust, preposterous love, preposterous joy. These are our river teeth, the time-defying knots of experience that remain in us after most our autobiographies are gone. 
So welcome to Confluence, Brian. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah. And, you know, that's a beautiful passage. You mentioned that he's one of your favorite writers. That's David James Duncan. Um, but you haven't read it in a while. Yeah. But you know why I picked it. I mean, our, our theme is rivers. And that there's this really powerful sense that he's built this metaphor around, you know, rivers. And it's a three-page passage, actually, where he talks about the tree falling in and the wearing down over time. And then these things at the bottom, these teeth that kind of hang around. And I just thought for a psychologist, you know, someone trained in clinical psychology. It's kind of an interesting metaphor to dig into a little bit. Absolutely. It's toothy from a psychological yeah, point of view. Yeah, for sure. exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, Freud, Freud talked about the kernel of dreams. That's another thing that's like a hard um, bit that never softens out, that somehow is a, is a core idea. Is that kind of what resonates for you or what made, would the passage make you think of? Yeah, the passage for me is about um, what remains and what kind of wears down over time and what is kind of woven into part of who we are. Um, it's a beautiful passage. I just love the wood and the river and all the metaphors kind of woven together. Um, it's one of the things I like about David James Duncan. I think that he tells a story at multiple levels at the same time, and I really appreciate that. And had you read him much before coming to Montana, or was it you know part of your arrival here? Coincidentally, I read um, The Brothers K by him um, actually about two years before coming here, before Montana was even on my map. Mm-hmm. So I moved here, and then I just kind of heard by word of mouth that you know, he lived in the Bitterroot and is nearby, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, but maybe in some weird way kind of paved the way for you to, to be open to Montana because, you know, it's such a river culture. And if you were attracted to his writing, there's something about that maybe that appealed to you. Quite possibly. Because your, your Montana story is you, you moved across the country from uh, Furman, where you did your undergraduate, all the way up to Seattle. You got close to us, right, uh, right. you know, here in Montana. But then you had this opportunity kind of come about while you were working in the VA hospital. Right. And that, so tell us about that moment. What, you know, what was that like and what light bulb went off that said, yeah, I'll try that out. Yeah, it's a fun, um, one of those stories that just kind of your life turns on a small incident that you wouldn't have anticipated otherwise. So um, I had finished up or was finishing up my internship, um, which was part of my doctoral degree at the University of Washington. And one of my colleagues there, Matthew Jakubczyk, was also on internship with me. Um, Of course, we're all like scouring the job ads and looking to see what's coming open in terms of postdocs. I had already planned on staying actually at the VA for a postdoc for the next couple of years, um, but I hadn't yet accepted that job. And then a posting came open for the University of Montana. And Matthew said, you know, you might like this place. Yeah. And um, I, I sort of shrugged it off thinking like how many Thai restaurants are there really in Montana? <laughs> and, you know, what At are the, the different zero. options? Right, yeah. exactly. Um, but I, I decided that I would give it a try based on his recommendation. He yeah. grew up here. It was really interwoven into who he was. Um, and he was someone I trusted a recommendation from. So um, I came out here. I interviewed in March. Um, about 20 years ago and sort of fell in love with the place. Well, and you and I were interviewing at the exact same time. We're in the same cohort. It's funny, we've never talked about this, but actually I had a similar experience where a professor where I was teaching, Andrew Velke, had done his PhD here and he was at the institution I was at. And so when I told some friends that I was applying, he's like, oh my God, you're going to... He actually walked over to my office and brought me the Bitterroot hiking guide. (laughs) He said, I got a few pointers for you, you know. And the same thing, like I had never even thought about being here. And then, then here I was interviewing and coming. Yeah, and it's the connection with place that often is what brings people here. And even though I didn't have that connection, I had it one degree of separation. So yeah. he connected me to what he thought would be a good place. For and me. then you built it, I, yeah. I'm assuming, since you've been here for 20 years. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And you've built this incredible career here. You've done a, a bunch of things, obviously, all professors do. And, and 
what, what we really like to highlight on this show is, you know, what are the big things that drive your passions for your profession, your research interests? And I know that's extremely important to this program's identity, that it's a, it's a clinical psychology program. You're training future clinicians. But research is a key co- component of that. And I'm, I'm assuming that's part of what attracted you to the position is to kind of work on both the training side and the research side. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the great part about my job is that I get to do so many different things over the course of a given day or week or month. Um, really, what is at the core for me is graduate student mentorship. That's the most important thing that I do. I tell my graduate students that, and they probably think it's silly that I harp on it so much and <laughs> mention it over and over. But um, I really do think the most important thing that we can do is help train the next generation of people who are doing similar work. Um, so it's the combination of mentorship, teaching, research, service, everything that's kind of part of what I do that keeps my life interesting and my career moving. We're definitely going to come back to the mentorship component because sure. it's just so core to how you and I have been working together recently. But let's talk a little bit about your research. You brought with you some, some research questions you were already working on. On, especially um, addiction issues and behavioral addiction issues within the, the LGBTQ plus community. Talk about how that's unfolded and how that's kind of shaped your career. Yeah, sure. Um, well, when I started as a graduate student, there really wasn't a field of LGBT psychology, which is really kind of interesting to yeah. think about 25, 20 seven years ago, um, there wasn't really anyone doing scholarship in that area. Um, I knew that's where my heart was. I kind of knew that it was really important to look at issues that disproportionately impact LGBTIQ folks. Um, And I thought that I could perhaps carve out a career in that line, but I didn't know who to work with. Um, Well, there wasn't anyone. There wasn't anyone, right. (laughs) So, So I went to graduate school to work with someone who studied suicidality and had a treatment for suicide um, for people who were at risk for suicide. And um, that was kind of what I thought would be an entry for me because so many LGBTIQ folks are at elevated rates of suicidal ideation and behavior. Um, Over the course of graduate school, that morphed in a number of surprising ways. Um, One is I switched mentors, um, and I switched to work with someone else who had done a great deal of research on homeless adolescents who were disproportionately LGBTIQ as well um, in Seattle. So as being part of that study, I started to publish and look into kind of what are the health disparities that LGBTIQ homeless youth are facing in comparison to heterosexual and or cisgender youth. Um, And that led into an area of health disparities research that kind of guided maybe the first 10 years of my career, I'd say, mm-hmm. um, most of which is focused on substance use. So yep. substance use is one of the areas in which those health disparities are really clear and significant, um, depression, um, anxiety disorders, and um, certainly suicidality are also commensurate with that as well. And when, what about the interventions? I mean, what can we look at to say, you know, after now there's some body of evidence and we're researching it, what impact are they having? Yeah, so we're really in the early phase, I would say, of defining what it means to have LGBTIQ specific interventions. I mean, certainly the interventions that we already know work for people in general in psychotherapy are going to be beneficial, but there's probably an added benefit and maybe an added kind of way of getting people into treatment if they're LGBTIQ identified by having components of affirmative treatment right. and having a clinician who knows a little bit, even if they don't have direct experience about That's what, what it means. That's what I was going to say. So some of it is the outreach and recruitment yeah. as much as it is the specific tra- uh, treatment, but there is a treatment component that's uh, unique to that population. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, again, it's sort of in definition currently, but it has to do with recognizing discrimination and victimization that LGBTIQ people face at a much higher rate than people who don't have those identities or that identity. Um, and it's probably also a celebration of identity in various ways and helping people to feel affirmed when in many ways in their lives they may have been invalidated or discriminated against on the basis of those identities. So being in therapy can be a really corrective experience. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, as your research has evolved, you sort of said that's the first 10 years. What, yeah. what, what's happened more recently? Yeah. So We're taken old, right? So we can talk in decades. Right, right, exactly. Um, I think more recently I've moved into this phase of trying to figure out what it means to have LGBT-specific treatment um, and working on what those components might look like. Part of that research has also been trying to identify um, biases that either people or agencies might have about working with LGBTIQ folks. So as with other aspects of cultural awareness, overcoming one's own biases is a huge component of being able to be there and to be present for people who might have different identities than you. So we've looked a lot at biases. Um, we've looked a lot at protective factors. So yeah. um, for example, research from my lab has indicated that being a high school student at a school that has a gender sexuality alliance, even if you're not part of that alliance, mm -hmm. um, probably confers some protective benefits with regard to mental health. Um, what Just am I normalizing and, and giving you a sense of affirmative identity, even if you're not actively engaging. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the research in school has to do with this variable of belongingness, and belongingness really buffers against negative health outcomes. So if people feel that they belong in school, whether that be um, on the basis of their LGBTIQ identities or on the basis of some other factors, that's going to confer some health benefits that probably last beyond the schooling period. You uh, indicated one of your big research success was this zero cost study. <laughs> Why don't you tell listeners about this? Because it's quite clever, right? I mean, it's a simple way of getting at um, whether or not bias exists in the system and how it, it, sure. it is and isn't addressed. Yeah. Uh, well, I love a free research study. I mean, that, <laughs> it's nice to get grant funding, but it's also fun to be able to figure out, like, what questions can you answer without having the huge enterprise of NIDA funding or other yeah. mechanisms. Um, this particular study was one that I did kind of early on here at U of M. And it was in this interest of what are substance abuse treatment agencies doing to provide LGBT-specific services? So they all receive a survey every year saying, do you provide specialized services for people who use IV drugs or people who um, are homeless? And one of the options is for people who are LGBT, or at that time it said lesbian or gay. So many years ago, there were 900, I think it was like 911 agencies that said, yes, we do provide LGBT specific services. And I'm both curious and dubious um, <laughs> with regard to that. So, Well, you had um, done the research. You kind of knew there wasn't much out there. Right, right. So I, I was wondering, how are these agencies defining what a specific service is? And what does that really mean for a client who comes in? Because that same database can be used by clients to locate what agencies might be a good fit for them. So they might be looking on the basis of that information. So I started by um, just picking up the phone and calling different agencies and as a hypothetical client saying, um, I noticed that you were in the SAMHSA Providers Guide as an agency that provides LGBT-specific services. Could you tell me a little bit about those? Yeah. 
And the answers were disappointing. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, in fact, many of them were quite invalidating. The first call that I made um, was to an agency where the person said, well, of course we accept lesbian and gay clients, but we don't encourage them to stay in that lifestyle. Oh, wow. <laughs> so immediately I thought, there is a gulf between what That's they say they're offering. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and just the damage that that can do when someone yeah, is damage, really exactly. you know, yeah. having a hard time um, with the stigma of substance use and having a hard time reaching out for treatment, and then they're first attempt to do so gets this incredibly invalidating response. So our research team called all those agencies and and transcribed the response and coded those um, and found out that only a very small percentage of those agencies were pointing to anything that was LGBT specific. I love that on so many levels. It's clever. It's it's just a simple, straightforward approach. But you get great data out of that, too, you know, at the interface of a treatment and whatever ideas or values are structuring it. Yeah. Like a lot of faculty, um, you know, I, I think this differs a little bit across the disciplines in terms of how people imagine their impact in the world, you know, mm-hmm. the, the research impact, right? So obviously, we have some faculty who are, you know, generating a ton of research impact by, you know, their articles being cited. And, mm-hmm. But I think in your field in particular, that's important, right? But the really important thing is building out a whole new generation of practitioners. You know, on, on this podcast, we kind of elevate the importance of that relationship, that bond between mm-hmm. a researcher, uh, and a faculty member and a, and a student, researcher and a, and a graduate student. Um, but in your field, it's, it's just that much more important because of all that transmits in the clinical setting in terms of supervision, all the values that transmit that aren't, you know, there in the dossier or there in the research, right? They're, they're interhuman uh, dimension. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, what was it like coming into a field like that and yeah. growing into that role? I'm sure right off the bat, it's a little different, right? It's some, you're, you're on the other side of this dynamic. Right. Um, I, I think that coming into this field, one of the things that I realized and it was reinforced by a mentor early on is um, that there's nothing in graduate school that's too difficult or there's nothing that's too demanding in terms of what we do. It's just frequently too much. So mm-hmm. there's too many different aspects of what we do. Um, so I think about um, training the next generation of clinical psychologists is about training researchers. Um, it's about training practitioners. So I'm training people um, hopefully to get to a point where they can become licensed um, healthcare providers as well. It's about training teachers and the next generation of mentors. It's about training consultants. And um, so the mentorship that I provide really by nature, I think, has to um, have me wearing a lot of those different hats. Mm -hmm. And then the supervisees that I'm working with or my mentees um, can decide what matches their style, what doesn't. You know, Mm -hmm. of course, I don't want to put out a bunch of people who are very similar to me necessarily. Well, you say that, but actually, I mean, you know, I think that in some fields, the model is to create clones because they're going to amplify your research effect. I mean, that's a little sharply put, but but I think what, what you're getting at is that in your field, that's that's not the mentorship model. The mentorship yeah. model is um, finding that skill set, the match, right, yeah. with you, but also letting that student uh, define for themselves what they're going to go focus on, what the research area is going to be, how they're going to cultivate their talent. Absolutely. With transferable skills that they're learning through the program, through my mentorship, through all the different things that they're doing. So um, I think I'm happiest when students decide to carve out their own path and figure out a way to make that skill set work for them in a career that's really exciting and is going to propel them for the next however many decades. Yeah, I think that's so important for listeners to hear, especially if they're graduate student listeners and thinking about grad school. And this applies across the bat. You know, most professors really do want that. You know, so I was being snide earlier, but I mean, most professors really do want this student to find that thing that's going to define their place in the field. And sometimes that's 
within uh, you know the field that the student uh, has built out of the faculty mentor's expertise. But right. but you know, and the the goal is to liberate and, and to create new knowledge. Right. Yeah. We want our students to kind of go do something new that we've never done. Right. What's the area you've been stretched in most by your students? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think that. You know, as I started off earlier in the field, um, most of the research, and I've been using the acronym LGBTIQ because it's kind of most comprehensive, although there's more. When I started in the field, um, most of the research was, even though it used a more comprehensive acronym, was focused on minority individuals on the basis of sexual orientation. So lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals. And the real change I think that's occurred over the past 10 to 15 years is the incorporation of gender diverse and gender expansive individuals into the experience, um, recognizing that whether people are minoritized on the basis of their sexual orientation and or their gender identity, Identity, they have some shared experiences. Um, so I think that I've been stretched the most, mainly because it's outside of my own experience personally, um, by graduate students and other folks who have en encouraged me and worked with me alongside as we've started to explore how the impacts of health disparities might also apply to gender expansive and other folks. And similarly, how protective or, um, you know, other resiliency factors might also apply to gender expansive and gender diverse folks as well. Yeah, and I think a lot of us have experienced exactly what you're describing, you know, just across the board. In your field, it's applied intervention work, but in, in other areas, it's just being open to new possibilities that we just weren't thinking about. You're needing to kind of adjust as you hear new voices and and, and recognize and be open to what, what that does. You know, how does that shift your thinking? You know, if it's another field, maybe it's, uh, how does it shift your approach to gender in a literary text mm -hmm. or a philosophical matter or whatever? So that's really, really important. And I, I think you've also sort of talked a little bit about um, opportunities in the field that maybe didn't even exist for you. Uh, I, I think one of the things you said is, you know, consulting in tech as a, as a job consultancy type of track for someone who might today be coming out into the job market. What's that look like? Yeah, so um, the options are really pretty limitless for clinical psychologists. I mean, I think that, um, and I'm really fresh in thinking about this because I just went to a training conference where the theme was preparing our graduate students for a variety of different careers that didn't exist when we were coming out of right, training. Right. So, um, so some of those are in tech. I mean, I think that um, you know a number of clinical psychologists are building websites to help connect people to therapeutic services, or they're building apps to translate psychological principles into a really easily disseminated and palatable way that people might use for a few minutes a day, something that could be a benefit for them. So tech is one. Um, certainly consultation. A lot of psychologists are DEI experts, diversity, mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion, and are utilizing um, kind of the principles that we know in terms of helping people to um, expand their cultural awareness um, in ways that could be beneficial for businesses or for industry. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, psychologists today are not following the template that maybe everyone thinks of when they think of a psychologist, which is you've got a very kind patient person and then another person on the sofa across from them, <laughs> and they meet together for 50 minutes. Psychologists do that to some extent, um, usually not on a sofa, right? The client's not always on a sofa these days, but um, the the models of practice are very different. Psychologists are much more likely to be involved in integrated healthcare settings where they're working alongside um, MDs, nurses, and other folks in terms of coordinating care and providing brief interventions as opposed to necessarily long-term psychotherapy. So tons of options that are out there for our yeah. students. Well, thank you so much for that work. And, you know, we um, end every program 
with our quick hitters. Okay. And here they come. Every, Have every at it. everyone gets the same questions. Uh, morning or night person? I'm definitely a night person. Me too. I, I it's terrible to have to admit that, but you know, because there's other people who are supposed to be more productive in the morning. It's not me. Winter or summer? I'm definitely a summer person. It's been a tough winter. It's been a bit of a long winter. Yeah. yeah. If you're not a winter person, this is a tough one. You know, I'm not moving yet, but uh, <laughs> but it's been tough. Yeah. Sunrise or sunset? I love sunsets. Yellowstone or Glacier? I'm by far a fan of Glacier. Both are amazing parks, but Glacier, I've been there so many times and there's just so much more to explore. Yeah. What's your favorite Montana mountain range and why? I love the missions. Every time I drive up on Highway 93, that treacherous road, but come up Valley Hill and you see that view of the missions in front of you, it's breathtaking. Breathtaking. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've done it three dozen times, you know. Um, what's your favorite Montana river? I think I have to say the Blackfoot, not only because of its reputation, but I've just had some amazing days on that river. Yeah. Um, What's your shadow profession, the thing you kind of thought, maybe I could have been pretty good at that? Yeah, definitely architecture. Um, I'm always thinking about design and environment, and it's not completely far afield from psychology, but I think that would have been the other thing. Did you ever think seriously about pursuing it? I did, yeah. In fact, I um, shadowed an architect when I was in high school, the most disgruntled, saddest architect that they could have possibly <laughs> paired me with, who effectively talked me out of the career. But but I'm okay with that. I yeah, love being yeah. a professor and a psychologist. So, yeah. So. You you had an interesting undergraduate career. I mean, you, you studied psychology, but you took a lot of philosophy courses. Yeah. So you were you in college kind of already knew you wanted to be a psychologist or were you kind of exploring options? Um, I, I started off psychiatry possibly and thinking about going to medical school and um, I realized pretty early on that it, I was purely interested in psychology as a discipline and I didn't necessarily want to pursue a medical pathway, although yeah. of course there's a lot of health work in what I do. Um, but I also went to a really wonderful liberal arts college that um, had this idea that we should be well-rounded individuals, go figure. And yeah. um, so I was encouraged to take a lot of classes and do a lot of hobbies and activities that I otherwise wouldn't have pursued. Yeah, you've talked about the, a class you took that had three different artists talking about different uh, works of art. Those kinds of things from our liberal arts training, I think are really valuable. They stick with you because yeah. it, it's not just the content of what you're learning there. It's that idea of kind of changing your lens yeah. and hearing a debate play out. It's critical thinking, right? Yeah. Le learning how to approach different issues from uh, multiple perspectives. Yeah. yeah. What's the one piece of music you'd be willing to listen to for eternity? Um, I'm kind of obsessed with the group The World on Drugs. I don't know if you've heard of them. I, I will. I didn't know their work well, but I dug in a little bit because of you. Oh, the song Eyes to the Wind, I think, is beautiful. one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. You um, wouldn't hum any of it, would you? No, Sing it? absolutely no not. I, w I wouldn't do that for the band. <laughs> I, I think that um, <laughs> if they ever stumbled across it, it'd be the most embarrassing thing possible. <laughs> What would your best friend say about you when asked what you were like? Oh, um, I, there's what I hope they would say, what they'd actually say. Um, I'd like them to say that um, I truly am someone who cares about people and is very genuine, um, that I'm generous with my time and thoughts. Um, they'd probably also say that I like to have a lot of fun, too, and yeah. that's, that's good as well. From what I know of you, that's pretty accurate. They're, they're all saying that. <laughs> What's the voice you hear in your head when you go to sleep at night? I have to always be careful about how to answer questions like that because I realize they could be misinterpreted. Um, when I'm We're going, not in a clinical okay, setting. Okay, okay, gotcha, not, gotcha. Um, I think that when I'm going to bed at night, I try to reflect on the things that I've done throughout the day and think about, like, 
okay, what did, I, what did I do today? What would I have done differently? And what am I pretty happy with? Um, so I, I ideally would like to end my day with the voice in my head being somewhat of an affirmation for myself. Yeah, yeah. Great way to go to sleep and wake up the next day ready to do all that you do. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us on Confluence, Brian. Thank you, Ashby. It's been my pleasure. If you like what you've heard, you've got a team of talented graduate students to thank. Produced and edited by Kathleen Shannon from the MA program in journalism. Sound designed from Kate Lloyd from the MFA program in media arts. Jacob Christensen from the MFA program in theater edits the website and works the social media magic. Girl, was that? <clears throat> and say it, and say it. From Pride and Prejudice.